Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from EU updates to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is built by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's Global Tax Symposium Europe 2023 in Rome, Italy, where I'm thrilled to have Will Morris back on the podcast. Will is PwC's Global Tax Policy Leader and a frequent guest on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Will, welcome back. Thank you. For reasons I can't understand, Doug. Thank (laughs) thank you anyway. Well, there is no ending of global tax policy things to to talk about. The last time you were on... We talked about FSR, yep. the foreign subsidies regulation, that we are now in the throes of. It is implemented and going. We are not going to be covering that today, no. but I do want to talk a little bit about Pillar 2 and then also wanted to spend a little time um, at the end talking about an article that you recently published in Bloomberg Tax um, on tax and ESG reporting. Um, but maybe before we dive into some of the substantive material, um, you've been a key part of PwC's U.S. Policy on Demand news platform over the last five years. You and yep. I have had a chance to do a number of pieces on that. But you've recently joined me, Will, in the YouTube <laughs> game with the launching of Global Tax Talks, including Tax in 60 Seconds with Will Morris. Uh, Will, tell us a little bit about that and where listeners can find your content. Right. Well, so it's partly a sort of homage to Policy on Demand um, because uh, it's been so successful in the U.S. But when I took over this new role, uh, I wanted to take that global. And, you know, there there are a a number of things about it. It's it's about how do we get information to clients in in ways that, you know, suits them, doesn't suit us. We're wedded still. Um, probably a little too much to the 20-page memo and the uh, the 30-page slide deck. But actually, most people don't have that time. And what they want is, I mean, as you've done with your podcast brilliantly, what they want is the news they can use, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. And, you know, doing it on, there's a benefit, obviously, to doing it on a, a rhythm basis, you know, a, a once a week, whatever. Um, the 60 Seconds speaks to, you know, the TikTok generation, essentially. I mean, it is, how can we get you know, the key things we need uh, in 60-ish seconds. 60-ish. <laughs> I was going to note that I yeah. think I've listened to all of them. I'm not sure any of them have come in below 60 seconds. No, but none has been longer than 120. None so. has been longer than two minutes. <laughs> right. So it's it's definitely worth the yeah. investment. I think they're very, very well done. Right. Um, and I will also note that when I started this podcast, I committed to have all of them under 30 minutes. And I'm not sure this is episode <laughs> 141. And I think I maybe have one episode that I got below 30. So there's, a, there's a plus or minus. There's, there's, a, there's a plus or minus. But So I would encourage listeners to, yeah. to check you out. You can find it on YouTube, follow you on LinkedIn. You post it um, regularly, but um, it's really good and enjoyable content. And I agree that I think, you know, I spent a lot of time, Will, writing articles that nobody read, um, (laughs) except for other advisors and particularly not taxpayers or clients and really have had the opportunity to connect with uh, the international tax audience through the podcast. And I've gotten a lot of uh, favorable feedback. I appreciate the kind words, but I do think finding alternative ways to reach our audience and share information, particularly some of this technical stuff is really important. So I commend what you're doing. Thank you. 
So, all right. So um, let's get into some of the global policy stuff and particularly wanted to, to hear your thoughts on Pillar 2. So um, have had a lot of guests on over the course of the year. Um, we're, we're recording this towards the end of the calendar year in 2023. Um, I think that the OECD had officially said in, in November, and we'll talk a little bit more about this during an OECD conference in the U.S., that the official count is 36 countries mm-hmm. will be adopting Pillar 2 in 2024 of the 140 or so, whatever, that committed to it. Um, but what are your views, Will, just in general? How is the Pillar 2 process going in general? What should listeners be mindful of? Kind of where are we? Well, look, I think the, the crucial thing to remember is, uh, and, you know, despite what I'm, uh, I'll say in a second, is Pillar 2 is happening. I mean, it really is happening. Um, and, you know, the, the countries that are doing this of the 40-odd, you know, 27 are in the EU, or actually, I mean, we have to moderate that number because some have opted out, but the right. EU is doing it. Um, other major countries are doing it, the UK, Canada, etc. Um, so, you know, I think that the, the people should not imagine that, you know, somehow this is, you know, it's still going to go away. It's not going to go away. This is, this is going to happen. And, you know, what will definitely happen are IARs next year. More interesting question is what happens to the UTPR uh, in 2025. And, you know, as you've noted, um, whatever it was, 45, 46, 48, um, whatever that number was, um, yeah, 36, it, I think, in 2024. Oh, right. But then I think that of the countries that have specifically said they're going to do in 2025, that's where you get to the 56 right. or something number. That, right? These are not That's exact right. Numbers. So, you know, I mean, there are, there are still a number of countries. There are a number of countries which have committed to what is essentially the OECD timeline, particularly the EU, obviously, because mm-hmm. they, they put that in the directive, um, but others as well. Um, some others are clearly waiting uh, until 2025 uh, to, to do both parts of this. Um, you know, the UTPR, as, as we've discussed before, has been the subject now of political concern in the U.S. for um, six, nine months. Uh, and, you know, we've seen in particular the Ways and Means Committee members, Republican Ways and Means Committee members, um, talking about this. So, you know, I think we can still expect to see some change in aspects of the UTPR, and we, we can get into the details of that later. But the main thing is it's happening. Okay, now let's talk about how is it happening. Um, and... You know, countries are obviously legislating this within the EU. They have to follow, you know, pretty closely the within the, the tram lines of the directive. Uh, in other countries, you know, we're seeing some some different language use, some different changes. And one of the, you know, the issues, the concerns, I guess, that I've always had about Pillar 2 is it's meant to be a common set of rules. Um, but, you know, absent a world tax government, uh, in various countries, firstly, you know, governments will enact it in slightly different ways. But much more importantly, what happens when it gets into the hands of the courts? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are, there, are, there, are, there are precedents, whether it's civil law uh, in a different way, obviously. But, you know, there are different ways that courts can look at this um, when the administrators get hold of it. Um, and, you know, then sort of how do you deal with those, those cross-border clashes uh, in interpretation when there's no overarching treaty uh, which does all of this? So, you know, I think we're beginning to... Uh, to see some of those concerns being raised. Now, the, you know, the OECD has some proposals around that. Um, will they work? Well, we don't know um, because, you know, they're, they're still in the relatively early stages. So, you know, Pillar 2 uh, moves forward. But as you said, you know, we are in currently in November of uh, 2023. Uh, on January 1, um, this comes into effect. The IR comes into effect in many countries. Do we have not just the legislation but the guidance 
do we have, you know, we'll, get, we'll also talk about what the status of the OECD commentary is on this, but, you know, do we have what's, you know, if we look at the US, for example, you have legislation, you have regulation, you have implementing regulations. Um, what about forms? I mean, you know, we know that forms are being produced, but a number of countries have said, well, we'll take the globe information return, but we're also going to need our own return. Particularly for QDMTTs. Uh, absolutely. You know, these, these are actually, these are, these are big issues. And I, I did hear one um, senior tax official um, say in the recent past, well, this actually isn't really a problem because, you know, the tax authorities aren't going to need to, to get this stuff until the middle of 2025. To which the answer was, but businesses are going to need to be doing this from January the 1st, 2024. Um, yeah, particularly for those public companies absolutely. that are going to have to disclose in their financial statements. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, so there's a disconnect out here. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have in many cases the basic infrastructure now, but I'm not sure that we have, you know, let me use a, an architectural analogy, you know, the, the, the frame of the building is up. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we have the floors, far less the doors and the windows in, uh, in some cases. So, you know, how exactly is this going to work? And we've had discussions about, you know, could there be soft landings, you know, a soft implementation first year. Not clear. Yeah. Not clear it at all. It doesn't feel like that. It does not feel like that. Uh, and therefore, you know, when the, when the rubber hits the road, um, I think there are, uh, you know, sorry, I'm going to torture this analogy to death. When the rubber hits the road, <laughs> you know, there could be some bad skids right. uh, or there could even be some crashes in some cases. You are mixing some metaphors in architecture. No, absolutely. And, uh, oh, well, I'll <laughs> <laughs> You've invited me on before. You know that. So. <laughs> So I want to double click on a couple of those. Sure. Um, the the first one is particularly related to how are taxing authorities and just jurisdictions and courts, for yep. example, going to interpret this. Um, you know, one of the things that the OECD recently had come out publicly and said that they may mm -hmm. issue instead of some administrative guidance, some FAQs, some frequently asked questions, yep. and which caused just a whole host of questions in my mind is like, well, so does that mean that's just supposed to be like interpretive guidance for the administrative guidance? But, you know, the, obviously the OECD is not a legislative body. So how do those FAQs get incorporated into domestic legislation? And obviously from a U.S. perspective, that wouldn't be the case unless they came in through some sort of regulatory, you know, I, I, of yeah. course the U.S. is not going to be implementing <laughs> Pillar 2, at least in the short term. But I just understand U.S. law. How does that type of um, guidance get incorporated into, you know, domestic legislation right. for those implementing jurisdictions? Um, the other thing that you had mentioned, and I want to maybe spend just a little bit of time on the UTPR, because yeah. I think that, you know, we had Pascal was on my podcast, you know, almost nine months or so ago and reminded me that the Pillar 2 um, income inclusion rule was really designed after, you know, guilty. Yep. And so we have kind of the guilty or we have the Pillar 2 income inclusion rule that will be effective in 2024. And I think many of us can kind of get our heads around that. Well, it's a you know parent company that's collecting the top-up tax from the subsidiary, whether it's the UP, the ultimate parent entity that implements, or an intermediate parent entity. It's like a CFC rule. Yeah. Like we can get our heads around that. But in 2025, when the UTPR kicks in and all of a sudden – subsidiaries can collect the top-up tax from brother-sister companies or potentially yep. collect the top-up tax from their parent. Now, we know that the U.S. was able to successfully uh, get the OECD agree to effectively exempt the U.S. from the collecting of the, for the, collecting of the UTPR top-up tax from a U.S. parent by its subs. But there are other jurisdictions sure. where that will, will not necessarily apply. 
2025 really seems like a time of reckoning because now any implementing jurisdiction, if you're a U.S. parent or let's say a Chinese parent or some other jurisdiction that has not implemented Pillar 2, all of a sudden, if you operate in one country that has implemented the UTPR, all of a sudden your entire structure, all of the jurisdictions are at play. And we won't have, presumably are not going to have some sort of treaty. How does this get adjudicated? I mean, like 2024 is challenging for taxpayers to get the data, yep. but 2025 really to me seems like the time of reckoning of like, how is this all going to work? Right. Okay, so there are two big questions there. Um, so let, let's come back to the UTPR. But this question about FAQs is really interesting um, because, I mean, you know, one of the sort of fund... I mean, the OECD has no legislative power. Um, uh, it can it can approve things. So, you know, things go th- through an OECD process. They're, they're an OECD-approved document. It's an intergovernmental agreement. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the force of a treaty. Um, so... You know, one of the ways that the OECD has, has done all of this stuff is by essentially getting G20 buy-in. Um, but again, that doesn't give it doesn't give it legal standing. So, you know, when the model rules came out, countries committed themselves to implementing the model rules uh, in in pretty much the language that the model rules are in. It's always been less clear. I mean, putting aside the question of FAQs for a second, it's even it's always been less clear to me what the status of the administrative guidance is. Um, and you know, I was I was just looking back through the three, through the EU directive, but I think the UK says pretty much the same, which is this is really helpful interpretive guidance. What it does not say is this is binding mm-hmm. or precedential or anything like that. Um, so again, you know, come back to my point about what the courts do when they eventually get their hands on this. You know, who knows? Um, now, obviously, some countries are uh, actually implementing. Uh, you know, the guidance, mm-hmm. uh, they're just incorporating it into their legislation. Right. I mean, they're at liberty to do that. The EU directive says they can do that. Um, yeah, that's and, a recent announcement from the European well, Commission. Well, well, that's yeah, that's a different one. Okay. So, I mean, there is there is something actually in the directive which says, you know, this may be useful, you can incorporate it if you want to. Let's come back to that other one in okay. a second, because that that's also Yeah, that's quite, another point. We'll that's come quite, back. That's okay. quite interesting. Um, uh, but they don't have to. I mean, I think the... I mean, again, um, this is not a metaphor. This is, it actually is an analogy this time uh, with the transfer pricing guidelines. You know, there are some countries which, you know, incorporate the transfer pricing guidelines into law. There are some countries which say whenever the transfer pricing guidelines change as a result of an OECD agreement, then our law will change as well. It is not clear to me with the guidance, firstly, how many countries have actually incorporated into their law, and second, whether any of them have done any of the, the quote-unquote ambulatory stuff, mm-hmm. uh, which would allow, as changes come along, because they're going to continue to come right. along, um, what they'll do. So then you get onto the FAQs. I mean, you know, this is, uh, this is Brave New World stuff. I mean, everything in this project is new. So what are the, what are the, what is, what's the status of the, the FAQs? Well, it can't be any greater than the administrative guidance. And my guess would be, if you're looking at this logically, it has to be less. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's helpful. Um, it, it, it may be illustrative. Uh, you know, I mean, who knows how some courts are going to take it? Courts have looked at OECD stuff very strangely sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've, despite the fact that it, it has no true international legal standing, um, they have taken it as soft law, essentially. So it's possible, again, that that, that makes some difference. But, I, you know, I think at best uh, it, it will be helpful, hopefully, mm-hmm. and, and articulate some points. But, you know, if it goes against uh, a taxpayer, or for that matter, a government feels it goes against them, I don't think it has any, any sort of binding status at all. Mm-hmm. 
And then any reaction to the comment on the day of reckoning in 2025? Oh, no, no. Well, I was, just, I, was, I was just allowing a pregnant pause okay. for, uh, for, the, for the UTPR. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it's, it, it will be fascinating to see how the UTPR turns out. Um, because, you know, it, 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 was, it was always understood that there needed to be some mechanism to, to back up the IAR in case, you know, there were just countries which weren't in it in particular, you know, including parent jurisdictions. You don't want a, uh, uh, to allow open season for, you know, a tax haven that you don't like, sorry, investment hub, um, that you don't like to, uh, to, to do that. Um, but at the same time, because of this really massive, unannounced, I think largely undiscussed change which took place in December of 21 when it moved from, yes, the under-tax payment rule to the under-tax profit rule, or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that that opened up this issue of, uh, in particular, the parent jurisdiction, which was simply, I don't think, understood by almost anybody. I mean, you know, we'd known for a long time, because the UK had told us in public, that, yes, this was aimed at the US to a certain extent, it was the under-tax payment rule, it was aimed at FDII in particular. Um, but I think nobody imagined in their wildest dreams that it would apply to the R&D credit, for example, right. uh, or indeed to you know pretty much any other credit, low-income housing tax credits, any of those types of things. Um, yeah, so, any of the non, to your point, the non-refundable that's right, yes. tax credits. Well, but I, or put slightly differently, one which didn't cause a deduction in a foreign country and an inclusion in the U.S. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, that, that was just a big change. And I still don't think that people have, have fully digested that. You know, a year, year and a half ago, I was, was talking to people about, do you understand that this could have an impact on credits? Well, we don't know what you're talking about. Well, okay, uh, here we are. Um, so, you know, I mean, you, you raised what was previously thought of as the, the South Korea issue, which is, you know, they come in a year early now. It looks very likely that they'll, they'll mm-hmm. move back to 2025. Which, you know, could they impose the UTPR uh, on on the rest of the world, I think there are, there are two elements to that. The, f- the first is that realistically, that's as much a political question, if not more a political question, than it is a technical question. Technically, yeah, they could try. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's kind of extraterritorial, as we've discussed before. There are elements of the UTPR where you are clearly taxing another country's income. I mean, this For is, sure, this is outside the treaty network. I mean, outside the common understanding of the treaty network. I mean, particularly the the, the ability to be able to tax a sister company yeah. that you've got no ownership no. with. So it. you know, so so there's that issue. I, I think that's partly a political issue. I also continue to think it's a real practical issue um, because you know, particularly with, I mean, you, you mentioned other. Uh, uh, parent jurisdictions, uh, which may not uh, adopt the globe rules as well. Um, I mean, we can talk about ones which do in a second, but I mean, you know, the ones which haven't, how do, the, how do people get that information? I mean, how do you force that information? This is an issue we looked at, you know, first, God, almost 10 years ago now, in relation to uh, the OECD country-by-country reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, could you force a sub to, to file even that relatively basic information in the place of its parent? The answer is no, because they have no legal right to the information. If you look, and you mentioned the, uh, uh, I will say, amazing uh, Pillar 2 uh, engine at the beginning of this, if you look at the amount of information which you need to feed into that thing to get accurate calculations, it is staggering. Yes, and it is. if somebody doesn't give you that information, you are not going to be able to make it up. Um, and if you make it up, you, in a sense, only make the legal issues you know, even worse. Um, because then you're doing a guesstimate of what somebody else's income is in another country before you tax it, it having not arisen in your country in the first place. So I think, again, all of that, all of that becomes quite tricky. So I would expect to see more action 
uh, on the UTPR. I mean, there clearly needs to be something like a UTPR, as I said, to you know to prevent um, uh, you know some countries setting up setting themselves up as, as right. UPE jurisdictions. Um, but I, I think that the, the bits of it are going to need to change. So you know, I think there's still more of a conversation to be had there. And part of the part of the issue is that at least I get the impression um, from talking to governments that they're just tired uh, at this point. Um, you know, and they still, and they know they have a lot to do. And what they at the moment really don't want to contemplate is you know some major, major-ish change to the UTPR as well. I mean, not that they've legislated the UTPR. I mean, many countries haven't. Yeah, they've, even, they've kicked the can. Yeah, they've, they've kicked the can down the road, including some quite large ones. Yes. Um, uh, you know, but they just, they don't want to think about this now. They have, they have plenty of sort of current issues on the plate. Also, I think it has to be said, and I, I am going to say this, um, that, you know, the, the UTPR, the US, sorry, not the UTPR, the US, the United States, is not the most favoured jurisdiction uh, at the OECD at the moment. And therefore, you know, further accommodations towards the U.S. Uh, can be quite hard to win. So I think that, you know, we are going to need to get closer to the beginning of 2025, maybe even this time next year, um, when there is a serious discussion about, OK, what do we need to do here? Mm-hmm. So I want to come back to that sure. U.S. point because we'll sort of tease that out, particularly with the R&D, and you've mentioned that a couple times. But the, the European Commission put out an announcement in mid-November regarding mm-hmm. subsequent administrative guidance that came in after the EU directive. And right. there were question whether substantive changes kind of post the EU directive. And one of the comes to mind is the market transferable tax credits that that came in so what what did that guidance say and uh, there wasn't a lot to it so but uh, what did that what did that guidance say and then really the follow-up is what does that mean uh what did it say it said this is okay (laughs) so the the later administrative guidance even if it's substantively different is okay i mean it was it was pretty basic Mm -hmm. um and there wasn't a great deal of um further explanation or argumentation uh, around that um it's an interesting question because obviously when the when Europe was, um, when it first put out the direct, I mean, put out the draft directive, uh, and then when eventually it was adopted, almost 12 months later, they always had in mind that there was going to be this subsequent guidance, uh, and there are um, uh, references uh, both in the, particularly in the recitals to the directive, um, but also to a certain extent, you know, in the operative um, sections of the directive, which say, you know, this is this is useful, this is helpful. Um, this type of guidance, you know, countries can incorporate it if they want to. Um, but what they do, you know, there's, this is again not completely on point. It sort of is on point because, uh, in a sense, was the transferable uh, credit decision uh, essentially just a reinterpretation, or was it more of a safe harbor, or you know, what what exactly was it? Um, and you know, again. There is a provision in the directive, uh, and we'll probably come back to this in a second, which, you know, again says, yes, um, if there is essentially, you know, an internationally agreed safe harbour, then that's going to be okay for the purpose of the directive. But also, has to, it says this has to be consistent with the directive as well. So, you know, again, how far can you, how far can you push that? Um, and as you know, I mean, I guess at some point somebody could could take them to court if they wanted mm-hmm. to uh, on that. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, well, I'll be retired by the time that decision right. comes out. So, uh, I mean, at the risk of being provocative, the, the, they were very defined, if we look at the model rules and commentary, on a refundable tax credit. 
and to, to bring in a market transferable tax credit feels like a sub, more substantive than interpretive change. But I certainly think that is arguable. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm just a humble country attorney. But, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm in two minds about this because, I mean, as I said, you know, a year and a half ago, I was talking to people about, are we sure that we really you know, want to crash all these credits, essentially? Um, to which I don't think the answer is yes. Um, you know, I, I get, I totally take the point that there are, you know, credits again can be um, engineered in such a way that, you know, they they give benefits which are either worthless, which is an argument which a number of uh, the OECD and the IMF and others have made about some credits in the uh, in developing countries. Um, but there are some credits which are needed to deal with market failure, or because actually that's just the go way the government has chosen mm-hmm. to. Uh, to incentivize those things. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, I don't disagree with the result. On the other hand, the country lawyer in me, um, you know, looks at refundable and thinks, well, that doesn't mean transferable. Right. And, you know, again, you know, I, I'm not going to be the interpreter of these, but somebody, yeah. somebody will interpret them. Yeah, I think the most important thing, Will, for listeners is, you know, particularly with the EU, but this could be other jurisdictions as well, about whether countries who are enacting in 2024 will be able to include, and that was from the July administrative guidance that this concept sure. of market transferable tax credits came in, you know, will they be able to bring that into their domestic legislation just given the, the way their domestic legislation works and the administrative guidance of this EU direct or this new clarification of the EU directive didn't come out till November. Well, for example, France and Sweden are very far along the way and hadn't included that. Are they actually going to be able to include that? Can they bring in retroactive changes under their, you know, domestic constitutional rules, for example? And so I think it's important for listeners and policymakers to understand that, you know, if you're a if you're operating, if you're a parent company in one of those jurisdictions Mm -hmm. and you're operating in the U.S. and plan to take advantage of these green energy credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, it is possible that if in 2024 those rules are not enacted by that ultimate parent entity, that they will be collecting the top-up tax the for those Inflation Reduction Act yep. green energy credits if they can't get the, the, the MTTTs, MTTCs in, the market transferable tax credits. And, uh, you know, Treasury and um, the, the House Republicans had lobbied to the OECD. They kind of fixed the issue, so to speak, for U.S. parented groups. Right but may not have fixed that for non-U.S. parented groups operating in the U.S. Right. And then the, the kind of related issue that you had hinted at earlier is the R&D credits. Obviously, the U.S. research and development is not a refundable tax credit. And so I know there has been some discussions about, well, you know, is there the opportunity for another safe harbor right. to sort of bring in the R&D credit? Well, Again, we're at the end of the year here. That's not in. So for those foreign parented groups operating in the U.S., it feels like the R&D credit is is fair game for the IRs. But any reaction to that or thoughts about the potential of more safe harbors for particularly for U.S. or other incentives? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a great question. I mean, and just going back to what you were saying before about, uh, you know, about the UTPR and, and um, or the IR, I'm sorry, uh, and countries which can't, you know, bring in transferable credits. Um, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a real point. I mean, it may well be, and I just don't know enough about administrative guidance in other countries. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in the U.S., you know, the, the IRS or the Treasury could issue a notice which says essentially we're going to deal right. with this in a certain way. It may be other countries can do that as well. I think from there, the more interesting question is, you know, if there are other countries which actually just don't agree with this, 
uh, and they fail to, um, you know, they, they can't be forced to put it into their legislation. So if they fail to do that, you know, if they do that in a sense purposefully, um, you know, that's another potential. I mean, you've, you've talked about the, the folks who are too far along in their legislation. There may be others who use this to, um, uh, you know, to, to diverge slightly. And that's one of the issues you see with the QDMTT as well. You know, they, they can adopt the QDMTT, but they can also miss out certain other, you know, parts of what's in that when they're looking at, uh, mm -hmm. at elements of the QDMTT and the safe harbor. Um, on the R&D credit, um, at this uh, conference in DC a couple of weeks ago, the US Treasury um, said this is an issue which needs to be dealt with. Um, the OECD said slightly more, we're in Italy, sotto voce, um, that, uh, well played. Thank you. That they would, um, you know, that they would be open to to a safe harbor. Essentially, now exactly what the safe harbor looks like, I don't know. I could, you know, I could, you could come up with many suggestions. Mm -hmm. I could come, I could come up with some suggestions. Um, there is some question as to exactly how much weight um, safe harbors can bear, um, because if at a certain point they are um, not so much, you know here's how the rules work, but there are sort of elements of the rules which can be scratchy and therefore, you know, we'll, we'll present you with, with a simplified way of dealing with them. Well, that, that's a sort of straightforward safe harbor. Um, if it's something which, as you've said before, essentially overturns the rules uh, in a meaningful way, then can they do that? And obviously, you know, it is very clear um, uh, in the rules, and I mean, this is a problem with transferable credits as well. It mm -hmm. says, you know, they're, they're qualified refundable tax credits or they're not. And if they are, then, you know, sort of they go on the income line. If they're not, they come out of the tax line. And that's the treatment, full stop. Yeah. That's it. It's there in black and white. So transferable credits is, you know, already a stretch. Now, they've made an economic argument, which, sure, you know, I don't I accept. I told you mm -hmm. um, before. And then likewise, I think the R&D credit, you know, is a good credit, which should not be part of this. But it does go against the language uh, of the model rules. Uh, and, you know, again, it presents a particular problem, I think, for, for the Europeans, um, for the EU people, I should say, um, because, you know, it is it does seem to be different. So you can you can come up with a, you know, with a safe harbor, which says, for example, you know, I mean, you could you can use a mixture of qualitative and quantitative things. You can say, you know, if you're if in general your global ETR is, you know, X percent where X is obviously a number larger than 15, um, but also, you know, you're doing. Uh, proper research and development, the R&D matches either the European rules or the US mm -hmm. rules or somebody else's rules. Um, and, you know, you spend it in the country and blah, 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 blah. You, you can think of how you could do that. You know, this is our safe harbor. Well, yeah, it is. Okay, that's fine. You know, as a technical matter, it would work. But again, matching it up against the words of the, of the, of, of the model rules, it's, it's a big change. Yeah. Now, it, it may be an appropriate change, but it's a big change nevertheless. And again, I feel like, you know, the U.S. policymakers have protected the base for the U.S. parented groups. But I, I just wonder if they have the appreciation for the non-U.S. parented groups, what is at risk in 2024 for those jurisdictions that are, are own a U.S. subsidiary that have enacted the IAR. Right. And we'll see what U.S policymakers' reaction to that could be as they start to understand that a little bit better. Right, although I think the, the political reality is that first you deal with your U.S. constituents and then you deal with the rest. I get it. <laughs> and then I'm wondering, once, then they'll deal with the rest. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what the reaction is. Maybe yeah. the last question on, on, on Pillar 2 is, 
um, really kind of just how business like how has, has yeah. participating in this process because you know one of the many roles that you've had in the past you were the form of head of BEC yeah. or business at the OECD mm-hmm. you have you have given that up um, as you're taking on this global role at PwC but um, what is your view on kind of businesses involvement as part of this pillar two process are there needs being heard um, and just kind of how is that going from your lens of yep. kind of working with the OECD extensively in the past? Yeah, so it, it's 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 had its ups and downs, mm-hmm. uh, I think. I mean, you know, 20, uh, uh, 2021, I think, was not a great year. <clears throat> uh, you know, it was partly pandemic-induced, but there was just, there was very little consultation uh, at all. And, you know, in the end, um, uh, there was a sort of a bit of a blow-up at the end of the year. Uh, as a result of which uh, consultation then uh, took off, you know. Since then, the the major, um, you know, the, there have been there have been one or two consultations, but um, still virtual, which is uh, not 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 so good, or not as good as uh, as in person. But you know, the real point of contact has been the business advisory groups, uh, and this is a you know a relatively small group of of businesses, both on pillar one and on pillar two, um, who were picked for. You know, to represent both ge- geographic diversity and sectoral diversity, mm-hmm. um, uh, and to talk more, in particular, to the secretariat. Now, you know, I'll, I'll, the secretariat deserves credit on this. They've, there has been quite a lot of interaction. Again, you know, sometimes more than others when they're being pressed by the member governments, uh, they have to do that. Um, the the trouble with with the process is just it is there. There, are, I call it the everything, everywhere, all at once problem. Um, which is they are trying to do so much. They're trying to do so much with so many countries, uh, at a you know, in a time frame which is pressurized. Right. Um, that it is hard to I think always talk to all of the stakeholders. And you know I, I when I was at BIAC, I made very clear. Look, you've made the policy decisions, or you make the policy decisions. You have now made the policy decisions, but it makes sense to talk to business in order to get rules which work. And I mean, you know, we've seen this, we've talked about this uh, in relation to, you know, in particular to, to the sort of the modified deferred tax accounting mm-hmm. um, that they've adopted. You know, businesses have experience of that. Governments actually don't have experience. Certainly tax um, authorities, treasuries, you know, finance ministries don't have uh, experience of that. So talking to businesses about that uh, would be helpful. That Some of those conversations have taken place um, you know, there have been conversations recently about the transitional CBCR safe harbor uh, and the issue that the OECD have surfaced around anti-arbitrage. But at the same time, obviously, the OECD also have to deal with, in the case of Pillar 2, Working Party 11, which is a lot of countries. Right. Um, and, it, you know, it's just it's been difficult to do everything. So business has had some say. Um, or Not some say. Sorry, let me, let me put that differently. Business has, has had the opportunity to have input uh, into this, um, uh, you know, I, I think that it's gone, it's gone okay. But you know, in the end, you know, we'll see next year when people have to start doing this stuff. And you know, there is this question also about how long is this process going to uh, going to carry on? Right. Yeah, and I think you know the lesson that I have, and some of this is learned working with you, Will, is. The, 
businesses should still stay involved. Oh, and, and particularly, I think the U.S. multinationals are used to engaging in this. Yep. As I've traveled around the world, you know, since I've taken this global role, I think maybe some of the non-U.S. taxpayers are maybe less inclined to go and have those discussions, and I would highly encourage them yep. to. If nothing else, for the number of open issues that we discussed with our all these questions about the UTPR, administrative guidance, how this is going to fit in. So I really think it's important for you know, stakeholders, uh, particularly the taxpayers themselves, because they hear yep. the OECD, I'm sure here's plenty from us advisors, but for taxpayers to actually engage in, in that process. Now, I, I think it's crucial. Again, it's taking this real world experience. And one of the problems with Pillar 2 was, I mean, as you said, businesses in other countries, it's not like they're disinterested, um, but there is less of a tradition of engaging. Uh, and with Pillar 2, because for a very long time, you know, guilty as grandfathered was the, was the mantra, U.S. businesses were all focused on Pillar 1. Uh, and therefore, you know, the business involvement in Pillar 2 came relatively late in the game. I mean, you know, by the, you know, when the model rules came out, which was kind of slightly after the event. Um, so, you know, the, again, involvement since then has been, has been good. But yes, have to stay involved, in part because what's going to happen next year is, you know, sort of things, things start happening in the laboratory, if right. you will. I mean, it's this an is, important this, year. Yeah. And, you know, people will... You know, it's not that it's been theoretical up until now, but it hasn't, you know, people haven't been required to actually, you know, apply the law to make those forward-looking statements, all the rest of the stuff that you were talking about. And I think as people do that, issues will undoubtedly emerge. And business needs to have, you know, to be ready to make those points as quickly as it can do. Okay. Well, we're going to leave it at that, Will. And uh, the other thing that I did want to mention and plug is it was a great article that you have drafted. I don't want to shortchange that. It was um, in Bloomberg Tax, entitled Tax and ESG Reporting is a Growing Undervalued Relationship. Um, We'll leave that for another podcast, but I would encourage listeners to to check that out because there is a pillar to tie in, which which I don't think you expressly covered, but we'll we'll leave that as a hook to to keep (laughs) listeners coming back. So, Will, always great talking to you. Interesting. Uh, Lots going on, and uh, we'll continue to cover it here at the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Will Morris, PwC's Global Tax Policy Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.